0: Now those on the right worry about secularization, political correctness, illegal immigration and more. Twitter's US advertising revenue plunged by 59% for the 5 weeks from April 1st to the first week of May. The company has regular has seen regular uh, regular falls in its sales projections sometimes as much as 30% Twitter's ad sales staff is concerned that advertisers may be spooked by the rise in hate speech and pornography on the social network, as well as more ads featuring online gambling and marijuana products. Nikki Haley had a fresh opportunity to make her case for her candidacy during a 90-minute CNN town hall meeting or town hall special on Sunday night. This was an effort to emerge from the low single digit shimpose where she has been mired. Now, compared with CNN's explosive, much criticized town hall style event with Donald Trump last month, this one was a throwback to earlier, less combative times. There was no audience jeers whipped up from the stage and no forceful interrogation of the candidate. Some states are letting neighborhoods police themselves. In April, the police stepped aside and let residents of the Brownsville Safety Alliance in New York City, this is a group of neighborhood and city groups, respond to 911 calls. In the first half of 2023, the group says homicides fell by 50%. They say shootings fell by 25%, and the rate of grand larcenies of automobiles also fell even as it rose in other neighborhoods. Now, similar programs are underway in Eugene, Oregon, Denver, and Rochester, New York. The Center for American Progress says that almost 40 percent of calls to police could be handled by community responders. A decision by then-President Donald Trump's campaign to send more than $1 million for two firms to study whether electoral fraud occurred in the 2020 election has become an increasing focus of federal and state investigators in recent weeks. The research is likely to be used as the prosecutors try to build a broader case alleging racketeering. Robert F. Kennedy, a candidate for president supported by one in five Democratic voters in some polls, campaigns on the idea that powerful people have been working in secret to deceive you. Kennedy's campaign aims to embrace the spirit of his family's 1960 and 1968 campaigns, hoping to reunite working-class white supporters of former President Donald Trump with the Black and Hispanic coalition of Democrats that once rallied behind the Kennedy name. Robert Kennedy argues that current national polling does not yet account for the shifts he can bring to who votes in open Democratic primaries. And there's another Democrat, Entering the race for president. Uh, This is Professor Cornell West. He says he's running for truth and justice as a presidential candidate. Let me correct myself. He's not running as a Democrat. He's running as a candidate for the People's Party to reintroduced America to the best of itself. He says he's going to fight to end poverty, mass incarceration, ending wars and ecological collapse, and guaranteeing housing, health care, education, and living wages for all. California's Attorney General Rob Bonta is probing whether migrants flown by private planes to Sacramento without any prior arrangements were in possession of documentation purporting to be from the government of the state of Florida. Attorney General Bonta is also evaluating potential criminal or civil action against those who transported or arranged for the transport of these vulnerable immigrants. Well, this is Ariva Martin in Real Time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trendy news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. In this hour, I'm joined by two brilliant contributors, immigration attorney Alan Orr and Democratic strategist Chris Scott. And in hour two for my Behind the Headlines interview, I go one-on-one with Dr. Andra Galipsey. She's the author of Race and the Obama Administration, Substance, Symbols, and Hope. I'm going to talk to Dr. Galipsi about what role will the Obama, yes, the Obama Administration have on the 2024 election and how all of the candidates, including now Professor Cornell West, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, the whole roster of Democrats and Republicans, even those running as independents. How are they going to address the role of race and the issue of race? And how will the Obama administration and his handling of race play a part? But before I bring on my guests, here's what I'm thinking in real time today. Brianna Taylor- would have been 30 years old, but she's not around to celebrate her birthday because she was shot and killed while sleeping in her bed by Louisville, Kentucky police officers. And this morning, as I was reflecting on the murder of young Breonna Taylor, I ran across this story of another senseless police shooting of a 31-year-old black man by the name of Najee C. Brooks. Najee Seabrooks had worked for years to reverse a spike in shootings in Patterson, New Jersey. Uh, He had worked to build friendships with gunshot victims and to persuade gang members not to retaliate against each other. But now Mr. Seabrooks is dead. He barricaded himself in a bathroom. And when the police arrived in riot gear, they trained their guns on the bathroom door. And after Mr. Seabrooks emerged with a knife, he was shot and killed. Uh, his murder resulted in uh, you know, widespread protests throughout the state of New Jersey and particularly in the city of Patterson. And unfortunately, this was not the first time police in this city has shot and killed an African-American. But his shooting not only prompted widespread protests, it also prompted an unprecedented action by the attorney general for the state of New Jersey. Uh, After the shooting death of Mr. Seabrooks, the attorney general for that state seized control of the Patterson Police Department. And in an interview, the attorney general said this high profile shooting uh, was evidence of misconduct, widespread misconduct on the part of the Patterson Police Department, including what he called a number of criminal offenses committed by police officers. The attorney general said he couldn't sleep every night wondering what the next shoe to drop was going to be. Now, the sad reality about the Patterson Police Department is that they have a history of robbing, beating, shooting and killing scores of black men. Earning the Department a Reputation as one of the most troubled and violent police departments in the state of New Jersey. Between 2018 and 2020, the city's black residents who make up about a quarter of the population were the subject. 57% of the police department's 600 plus uses of force. So here you have 25% of the population in Patterson, New Jersey is black, but black folks are 57% of the use of force cases. Uh, the takeover by this attorney general represents a bold attempt to answer a quandary that has long confounded cities and states across the country and really boiled over in 2014 when a police officer in Ferguson, Missouri, shot and killed Michael Brown. And that quandary is how do you fix deep rooted cultural problems and repair trust In a police department with a history of abuse, particularly abuse of black and brown folks in communities. This is a question confronting this attorney general. And it's a question uh, confronting police departments all over this country. And what better day to reflect on that than on the birthday, the 30th birthday of Breonna Taylor. Uh, The reality is, if this takeover is successful in Patterson, New Jersey, it could become a national model. Uh, It could become a model of how attorney generals seek to use their power to address widespread police misconduct. Uh, It also can become a model of attorney generals working in partnership with the U.S. Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division uh, in overhauling troubled police departments. Now, we know If it fails and, you know, it's not really clear how we're going to define success or failure, but we know that those on the right will be waiting to pounce on this model. I'm not sure, though, how I feel about it. Obviously, Patterson, New Jersey, was out of control. Something needed to happen. In this case, you have a Democratic attorney general seizing control of a police department to address widespread abuse Uh, by that police department that's been perpetrated for years on black and brown folks. But what if that attorney general was in a red state? What if that attorney general was trying to take over a police department like the police department in St. Louis, Missouri, where you have an African American mayor and you have a police chief appointed by that African American mayor? Uh, What if you have a, a red State, a conservative, a Republican attorney general trying to seize control over that police department. Lots of questions. Uh, I'm going to have my contributors weigh in on how they are feeling about attorney generals using their power uh, to seize control over local police departments. Obviously something needed to be done in Patterson, New Jersey. Uh, and the question is, was this the right thing to do in real time? When we come forward, KPLA Talk 1580
1: She's the real deal in real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580.
2: getting vaccinated with Prevnar 20.
0: So am I, because I'm at risk for pneumococcal pneumonia.
2: If you're 19 or older with chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, COPD, or heart disease, or are 65 or older, you are at increased risk for pneumococcal pneumonia. Ask your doctor or pharmacist about Prevnar 20, pneumococcal 20-valent conjugate vaccine. It can help protect you against pneumococcal pneumonia in just one dose. Even if you've already been vaccinated with other pneumonia vaccines, Prevnar 20 may help provide added protection.
1: Hey, did you know nacho fries are back at Taco Bell? But they're not going to hang around forever. So don't wait. Or you might miss out on these hot, crisp fries covered in all those bold Mexican spices with delicious nacho cheese sauce. Or wait and just settle for flavorless fries. Regular, bland, spiceless, flavorless, flimsy, non-nacho fries. Ugh, <sighs> just an absolute bummer of a fry. Nacho fries are back. Get them today, only at Taco Bell. participate participating U.S. Taco Bell locations for a limited time only while supplies last.
2: Contact local store for hours...
1: The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580.
0: I'm back and I'm joined in this hour by immigration attorney Alan Orr and Democratic strategist Chris Scott. All right. So uh, Chris and Alan, the attorney general in the state of New Jersey, has seized control of the Patterson, New Jersey's police department after a shooting of this 31-year-old African-American uh, man, uh, Najee Seabrooks. Najee was known in this community for uh, helping to mediate crises and uh, helping to prevent violence. And maybe he had some kind of mental health. Uh, breakdown or issue or challenge but anyhow he barricaded himself in a bathroom in a house police come in in riot gear and after a standoff Mr. Seabrooks is shot by police and it prompted widespread protests also prompted the attorney general to take advantage of uh, a piece of legislation that allows the attorney general to take control or seize control of a local police department and You know, I I ran across this article today as I was reflecting on the 30th birthday of Breonna Taylor and just thinking about how much work we need to do in this country around policing and what are some of the best practices to really get the kind of result that we want, which most black folks say they want, which is not to do away with police, but to have constitutional policing in their communities policing that does not deprive them of their constitutional rights and doesn't result in the kind of abuses that we I mean the Patterson police department was just off the chain abusive selling drugs out of their cars jacking people up you know stealing just I mean the violence is, is it was so rampant it's unbelievable that the justice department had not come in and, and done something with this police department before but How are you feeling, Alan, about this attorney general takeover in this state where you have this Democrat? I'm like, okay, but we also know that this could be happening in a red state and it could be uh, trying to take over the police department like in St. Louis, where you have a black mayor, you have a black police chief.
3: I think it is happening everywhere. You see this grab of power from certain people who feel they're better positioned to control or to handle situations level I think the concept of policing as it ar- arose from slavery needs to be redefined and changed I think uh policing in itself makes people feel secure when in fact the statistics don't bear that out that it leads to security and in fact either they're either coming after the crime has already happened or causing the event in which there is a problem so therefore we need to rethink the way we do that and follow some of the societies that police may not even have guns they may have sticks they may have other things I do believe that there is a level because of the level of guns in this country that we do have to have some Control, But I don't think that it's always the right situation. And maybe a law enforcement agent who is not qualified in social services should not be the first person to handle someone having a crisis on the scene.
0: You said maybe our police officers should have sticks. The first thing I'm thinking about, okay, that's not going to work out so well when so many of our private citizens have not just guns, but they have assault rifles and they have, you know, ammunition that would be, uh, you know, appropriate for war and war type crises. So I I don't know, Chris, this is a thorny issue. And whenever black folks are polled about policing, they are pretty clear. They want police, they just want good police, they just want honor police They want, you know, community policing. They are not in favor of eliminating the police.
4: Yeah, I think back to my time when I was working for uh Cook County State's attorney Kim Fox on her re-election campaign and some of her main points of, you know, just being smarter about, you know, how we police communities, making sure that the police actually have a relationship with the community that they're uh policing, but also let's look at the type of things that we're even having police respond to, especially in the case uh, I think of, you know, how much more uh, prevalent mental health is and how many more times you get those calls. Sometimes I don't think the police need to be the ones actually responding to those calls. You need to have a more specific unit, similar to how you would have a SWAT team respond to a bomb threat. Why don't we have uh, more responses for people that are trained to actually deal with that. And I think that's just the start of how we get better in how we police communities in the first place.
0: So both of you have been very skilled in, in not answering my questions. I got to come back, Alan. What do you feel about these attorney generals taking over police departments? Thumbs up or thumbs down on that as a policy?
3: I think it's it's inappropriate. I think it's inappropriate for them to take over a department. That's clear. I also don't want people to think I'm Pollyannish. I think that we we need to de-escalate everybody. We need to get a handle on guns and a handle on the police. And those things work together. But, you know, ratcheting up each side to go to a higher level is an escalation. We need to de-escalate things.
0: What are you, Chris, on Attorney June's? Yay or nay? Hey,
4: Yeah, I'm a nay on that as well. I think it gets to a little bit of overreach, and especially in the South, I worry about what a red state would do if they had a law like that in place.
0: Yeah, that's the problem. You know, th- there are these exceptions, and-, and Patterson obviously needed a quick and very, sw- uh, you know, serious intervention because those police officers are out of control. But, uh, you know, we can't advocate it in this one situation and then have to deal with it, as you said, in some of these southern states, these red states, because we know it's not going to end well for black folks in those states. Let's talk about the two uh, presidential candidates, Robert Kennedy Allen, and now Professor Cornell West. He says he is uh, best so- qualified, best suited to be the next president of the United States. We know he's known for his academic activism. He's a former uh, professor of practice at Harvard University. He's been a professor at Princeton University. Uh, he's 70 years old and he says neither political party wants to tell the truth about Wall Street, about Ukraine, about the Pentagon, about big tech, uh, and what is really happening in this country. And he says he's the guy to do it. What do you think about Professor wanting to be soon President Cornel West?
3: Okay, so that's a hard pass for me. I think he's a brilliant mind. He's a black philosopher and he was one of my idols. I'm also a philosophy major. Um, But his best place is in the classroom. He does not have the credentials to go to the White House. And we've seen this experiment before with another president. Uh, who didn't have the sort of chops, the political chops, and the, and the sort of political activities? I think that his heart may be in the right place, but his activities are going to cause dissension within the Democratic Party and confusion among Black voters, which just doesn't need to be there. I don't think he could have the same conversations that he's had for many years, right? Had many panels, same impact, because I just don't think that he has the gravitas at this point to make it to the White House.
0: So, Chris, you're a Democratic strategist. And, and this is, I guess, a I Democratic guess- strategist nightmare is to have an African-American man running as a third party candidate, meaning he's not a Republican candidate. He's not a Democratic candidate. You know, how much damage, if any, can a candidacy, a third party candidacy of Cornel West do to Dems?
4: Look, I love uh Dr. West. I think, you know, he probably will have some people following, but I look it at, at it similar to when Kanye West was trying to put himself on the ballot in the primary. It's just he doesn't have the the record to even attempt to go for something like that. So uh all the luck to him uh in the endeavor, but you know, let's just call it for what it is. It is just essentially a smokescreen and it'll be, you know, news for 24 hours, 48 hours. But, you know, we all know uh, what the big prize is at the end and it's uh, Biden against whoever uh, is going to be on this uh, Republican side. Uh,
0: You know, I'm looking at a, a tweet, Alan, because someone is criticizing Cornel West saying that he is praising Ron DeSantis. And they're asking the question of why would Cornel West, uh, in an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal, praise DeSantis? You know, what's happening? Why would he praise him as this man is destroying public education, declares Mm -hmm. war on anti-racism and rains hell on LGBTQ folks, then announce a presidential bid? What are we to make? Of Cornel West's...
3: Exhibit number one of why he should not be anywhere close to the White House. Exhibit number one. Just staple it. Right? That exact sort of level of supporting someone who's that extreme and the things and the harm they've even done to the community that he plans to support, you know, is exhibit number
0: one. Yeah, interesting. I'm a big fan of Cornel West. Like, uh, you are, Alan. I think many of us are. Those of us who fancy ourselves i don't know we're not going to call us pseudo intellectuals we're intellectuals you know <laughs> we have some intellectual heft but you know so we've read him and we followed his career uh i i don't know about this though he 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 makes me nervous chris like uh robert kennedy robert kennedy has just trafficked in conspiracy theory after conspiracy theory and one of the ones that really concerns me is around autism as an autism advocate as a mother of a child on the autism spectrum you know, his theories about autism and the black community and some of the theories he has uh, around COVID all are very troubling. So what do you make of Robert Kennedy as a candidate? He says one in five Dems are going to vote for him and that those numbers are low and that when the real poll numbers come out, they're even higher because he offers uh, a solution forward that Joe Biden doesn't. And and he's the, the real Democrat in this race that folks should be Uh, you know, getting behind?
4: I mean, the only reason why we're even talking about uh, Robert Kennedy is because because of his last name, and it stops there, really. Uh, I think when you're looking at who is trying to essentially make up a primary field on the Democratic side between Robert, between Marianne Williamson, um, you know, I think the bigger thing is let's not Give the platform, I think uh, that we've seen happen, especially on the Republican side to folks that can potentially spread disinformation that could be really problematic uh, in this election cycle.
0: Yeah, and Robert Kennedy is, is a purveyor of disinformation, unfortunately, and I think you're right. But for his last name, uh, we wouldn't even be having this conversation about him. But yet that the Kennedy name carries so much weight in political circles, particularly Democratic political circles. Uh, i not sure his candidacy has the kind of support that he uh, purports it to have. When we come forward, I want to talk about uh, a former Watergate prosecutor says that Donald Trump is toast that he is all but surely to be indicted because of uh, his removal of classified documents from the White House. Want to talk about uh, are we going to see the indictment of Donald Trump uh, in the next couple of weeks, according to this former Watergate prosecutor? Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580.
1: Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariba Martin in real time when we come forward. forward. Let's get back to more of Areva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580.
0: I'm back and I'm joined in this hour by immigration attorney Alan Orr and Democratic strategist Chris Scott. And we're talking about all of these folks who are running for president, many of them unconventional candidates. And I forgot to mention, Alan, that Larry Elders is running for president. He recently ran. Uh, He was going to try to be the next governor of the state of California if there had been a successful recall of our governor, Gavin Newsom. So he made a little waves in the state of California as he did that. Now he says, oh, California is too small of a pond. He needs to take his show on the national road and he needs to be president of the United States. Why are we seeing Folks like Larry Elder,s who's a radio Repub- conservative, I don't know what is. I guess he's a Republican. He's running a Republican primary. He's a conservative talk show host. Why is he running for president? And why is Professor Cornell West running for president? This
3: is the problem that we have from our last election, still the last one prior to the to the Biden administration. Now we have this concept that anybody can be president, which as a child maybe if you do the work, but you just don't throw your hat in the ring. So now we're doing high school, and we're all going to run. So of what? I don't know. Waste your money. If you got the money, the time. I mean, you could help some people. Right. Send send that money somewhere else. What? Yes.
0: I feel like it's one big grift. You know, it's kind of like lawsuits. Right. Anybody got two hundred thirty five dollars or they can go and file a lawsuit because they can pay the filing fee. But this a serious business. And unfortunately, people believe in these candidates and they donate millions and millions of dollars to these candidacies uh, and to these candidates, I should say. And a lot of folks really believe that they have a chance of winning. They listen to their rhetoric and they believe that these candidates are viable when folks like us know that these candidates have no chance of, of winning, no chance of being successful. And, and I my heart goes out to the people who they sucker. I mean, use that word. They sucker into believing that they have a chance. And, and folks on fixed income start sending them money. And some of these candidates, like I said, can raise millions of dollars. And it raises a question about what happens to all of that money, Chris, once uh, these campaigns fail. What what does happen to a lot of this money that people donate? What are some of the, the campaign finance laws? What do they have to do with this money, assuming they haven't spent it all? on ads yeah, and
4: that's the big thing assuming they haven't spent it all. Uh I think about how many times you've seen campaigns end and they still actually owe a debt because they overspent. Um and I think a lot of times you especially see that play in a primary where people uh, I think, especially running for president, are very ego driven. Everybody thinks they are the magical one, even when they know they're not um, and they just want their own self-esteem boosted uh, even more. But uh, a lot of times those are the main campaigns that will also owe quite a bit of debt uh, when they're dumb running in the first place.
0: Yeah, you mentioned Marianne Williamson, uh, Alan. She also ran for U.S. Congress. She's run for several offices. And, again, all very talented individuals in their own rights, but no resume, no platform, no constituent base, nothing that would suggest that they're going to be successful on the national level. And I think you're right, too, Alan. You know, Donald Trump becoming president sent a message to anybody that, you know, qualifications be damned. Uh, You know, just... If you're a radio host or a talk show host or a comedian or whatever, you can run for president. Uh, But we see Trump, and I have to wonder, Alan, if he's having second thoughts about being president because he has now put himself in such legal jeopardy. Three of the lawyers representing him spent nearly two hours uh, at a meeting with folks at the Department of Justice because they're complaining that this classified documents inquiry is somehow unfair this is the case where this former Watergate prosecutor, based on her experience and what she knows about the case, and the DOJ says that he is all but certain to be indicted and that that indictment is likely to come pretty quickly because they are near, the Department of Justice Special Counsel is near the end of its investigation. We know they've gone after some of these uh Uh, companies, this is in a whole separate case, this electoral fraud case, they're investigating some of these companies uh, where Donald Trump spent money trying to, you know, prove that there is electoral fraud. So everywhere you look, he is facing such jeopardy. Are you of the opinion, too, that at least in the classified documents case, we're close to an indictment?
3: So I'm a jurist and justice is slow and (laughs) Teflon John has been Teflon Don for a long time. So I, you know, hopefully what It's like Christmas. People have been waiting for a long time. I think it's a horrible distraction because in this array, him going to jail does not solve our problem. He is a symptom of the greater problem. Mm -hmm. Even in jail, even in court, thirty percent of America is going to think it's all political, and that's the problem that we don't have a realization moment. So whatever happens to Donald Trump, I'm more concerned about what happens to the democracy and if he becomes a martyr of some lost war that never existed, and he was always a fraud. He was a fraud or fraud before because he just wanted the money president. Then he got the presidency and he thought, oh my God, I'm going to do the reality show of a lifetime. He did the reality show of a lifetime. Then he lost, right? And then he grifted, which is his big grift, right? Lawsuit, lawsuit. He gets fined. He loses in court. He goes back on TV the next day and says the exact same thing he just got paid for, right? Never pays his bills, right? He has mar a and all these other places. It is a game of games. His life has always been, that's the life of a mob boss. We know that. A criminal is just one always until it catches them. But then they've had a great run and he's had a great run. I mean, my gosh, he had the presidency.
0: Yeah. And I'm just thinking about all of these lawyers, Alan, we know how much these big firm lawyers charge. We know the pressure on them to bill hours, to to create revenue for these big firms. I cannot imagine uh, how, someone other than a Donald Trump could get these kind of high price, super smart, otherwise super smart lawyers to represent him in case after lawyers. case. They okay. now need their,
3: their own lawyers. lawyers. That's yes. the problem.
0: <laughs> many of them need their own lawyers. Many of them facing discipline by <laughs> bars, uh, you know, in their respective States and some actually facing criminal investigation all the more reason why i say how does he keep getting folks to represent him knowing what jeopardy it could put them in uh chris i do want to ask you though before uh we go to break i want to ask you about joe biden how does he run against donald trump if donald trump is indicted because right now joe biden isn't talking about trump and all of his legal troubles and you know the investigations Is this the best strategy, and should he continue with the strategy, even if there's an indictment by the Department of Justice on these classified documents?
4: Well, I think depending on what actually comes out of the possible indictment, I think will set up a lot of how Joe Biden approaches it. Uh, In the first place, I think the biggest thing uh, that Biden just needs to take care of is still getting the message out of what he's actually done in his first term. Look, he's already beaten Donald Trump uh, once. So there's already a recipe for success there. Uh, But I think it's the not taking it for granted because it should be even easier this time if you were to get him uh, in a rematch and make sure he still does everything he needs to do. Uh, to turn out voters, because again, uh, like Alan said, the martyrdom that can come from Trump if he does receive an indictment is equally as scary uh, if somehow he's allowed to stay in this Republican primary.
0: Yeah, I think uh, Biden is in a conundrum, but Democratic strategists like yourself and Democratic communications specialists are going to have to figure out what's the best way to deal with Trump's, what I believe are going to be his indictments from one of these investigations. And I don't think we can just let it ride. I, I think we've got to draw. Really?
5: I, think, I think if he
3: says something, it'll just interpret that the Department of Justice is on his side. I, I would totally look the other way. He's not running against Donald Trump. He's running against the Republican Party right now because they're all versions of Donald Trump. So I would not talk about Donald Trump at all. I would not. As soon as he says something, oh, the Department of Justice, they're under your control. They did the same thing that would totally sort of avoid that whole conversation.
0: That is definitely one strategy, Alan, but I I don't think it's the right strategy. I think the independents out there are going to wanna hear and see that these indictments mean something. This isn't, because I don't think everybody's bought into this notion that the Department of Justice is corrupt or it's working under the auspices of Joe Biden. I think there's still a lot of people out there that believe in the independence of the Department of Justice, that believe in the independence of the Supreme Court, and we've never had someone running for president. Really smart friends, though. It's under yeah. investigation and then indicted by a state. Uh, well, I know, mean, I, I think you could make uh, the Department of Justice.
4: You could make that argument of seeing when you know you have Republican Secretary of States keep their job while they're running for governor. That narrative, you have to be careful with that because people will likely accuse him of using the Department of Justice to his own political advantage. It's just something that he has to, you know, still at least think about how he's going to strategize, even with something like that, that should be cut and dry.
0: The question is going to be asked of him every time he makes the campaigns a stop. They're going to ask him about this DOJ Indictment. am not here to talk about Donald Trump. I'm here to talk the about
3: Democrats, the American people. Here, let me write it down for
0: him. I just, <laughs> I just hope he has a strategy to address it. Mm-hmm. And, and I hope we see lots of T-shirts with Donald Trump in orange jumpsuits. <laughs> uh, when we come forward, want to talk about Twitter. You know, are we see in the last days of Twitter. And what about this neighborhood in New York that policed itself for two weeks and says that they saw record a record drop in crime. Is that the way we should be thinking about policing in America when we come forward? KBLA talk 1580.
1: She's the real deal in real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA talk 1580. The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA talk 1580.
0: All right, Chris, so this Brownsville, uh, New, New York neighborhood is participating in this experiment whereby 911 calls are responded to by citizens, not police officers. And they say, according to uh, many in this community, that this is working and that crime actually fell in this community. Is this something that police departments and communities all around this country should be looking Uh, To emulate, and what are some of the pitfalls, if any, that you see in allowing residents to respond to 911 calls?
4: Yeah, well, I I think, you know, there is a way that you can take some things out of this. And I think we've seen this done in other townships a little bit before with more of the neighborhood police model. Uh, I think long term, I don't think it's a, a solution that you can have citizens fully police themselves. I mean, It just, it's not going to work on a larger scale, the larger of a city that you get. Um, But I do think there are ideas that you can take in how to better police or police in partnership uh, with citizens. And maybe it is having a more robust uh, block hub to be able to assist with certain aspects when it comes to community uh, watch and policing.
0: Yeah, uh Alan, in a story that I read about this community, there were store owners who said, hell no, <laughs> they wanted the police back out on the streets with guns, and that they were very concerned <coughs> about this model and how it might encourage criminals to think, you know, it's a free-fall. What do you think? You know, how do we get this balance? I'm also thinking about police unions who are going to be adamantly opposed <laughs> to citizens doing the job that they believe police should be doing. Because anytime we take money away from the police, we always see a major pushback from police unions. I think you're muted, Alan. No. Yeah, we can't hear you, Alan.
3: I was sorry. I think it needs to be a balance. I think that we need to find that happy medium where, uh, you know, we're not talking about militias. So therefore, we need to make sure that what we have from the community service size is something more like a neighborhood watch it's friendly and not policing and not enforcing anyone's constitutional right, but basically seeing things, spotting things, reporting things, sort of making notes about things. And then the cops are coming in and doing the other work. Mm-hmm. I think one of the problems we have in this country is that we believe that guns solve everything. And we need to move away from that fear. And we're being to each other. And that's what's going to eat us alive by saying, oh, it's a story. I don't have a gun. Someone's going to get me. Someone's going to, you know, all of this boogeyman under the bed stuff is what the Republicans sell us every day to be afraid of our neighbor or the black person or the immigrant or whatever. And we need to diffuse that.
0: No, you're absolutely right. But I'm glad you brought up that issue of constitutional rights. <laughs> because That's one of the things police are trained to do uh, is to allegedly people allegedly, right? Uh, but I do worry about, you know, that overzealous community leader that's using their instincts, right? Because they haven't had any particular training on Fourth Amendment, search and seizure, and some of these other constitutional rights that are such a part of policing and should be a front and center as police officers are going about their day-to-day activity. I think there's something good about what happened in this community and definitely should be studied. And there's something in this model that hopefully can be utilized and you know to help address some of these issues that we see so that you don't see this constant shooting of folks like 31-year-old Mr. C. Brooks or 30-year-old Breonna Taylor. And it's so important that we keep saying her name mm-hmm. and the names of other victims of police violence to make sure that we continue as a community to look at ways to address uh, how we police in America, particularly black and brown communities. All right, Twitter, uh, last days, we all knew that with Elon Musk, there were going to be major changes and now we see the proof is in the pudding. 59% drop in its ad revenue. And part of it is because advertisers don't want to be on a platform where hate speech is running amok. And you have, according to some insiders, uh, increase in pornography on the site and other ads related to gambling and marijuana sales. What What are you thinking, Alan? I know you're a big Twitter user. I follow I you. I know I mean, you're active. Yeah.
3: You know, the streets aren't what they used to be, but I'm still going in the neighborhood. So it is what it is until there's something better. And, you know, I mean, I think it isn't make it isn't having the, you know, I was an investor in Twitter. Uh, I had stock at Twitter. Um, but I think I think it's going to be OK. I think it's definitely a cesspool and it's not what it used to be. But, you know, things change.
0: Also, oh, you're encouraged. Is that because of the new CEO that came? Like, like what are you encouraged by? Because all the news coming out has been pretty negative. Right. So I
3: think, you know, once again, it's about what you use it for and how you can connect. I wouldn't be able to meet a lot of the immigrant activists that I want to have. So I hang out as much like a church. You're going to hang out with your people and your tribe and you can get your stuff you need and the other stuff you block and you move away from it. So that's it's just like the Internet to me. So it's a very useful tool to connect people across many regions in the world to say when something's happening, like, you know, there's there was an earthquake. I mean, a flood in Haiti this weekend. You wouldn't have known it if it wasn't for the Internet because nobody else is covering it.
1: Hmm.
0: All right, what about you, Chris? Uh, Alan has a very hopeful view of it. He's saying use it, but recognize that it has changed. A lot of folks have left. A lot of folks don't want to be there for Elon's approach to Twitter, allowing hate speech, uh, allowing it to become the place where Ron DeSantis announces his presidency in a conversation with Elon Musk.
4: Yeah, I mean... I don't use it as much as I was using it since uh, Musk took it over. Quite frankly, I'm just waiting on the next bubble to appear. I know it's coming. Somebody's going to create a Twitter 2.0. Until then, Twitter still gets the job done when I want rapid response or if I just want to know, you know, what the culture feels feels about you know the most r- recent trend. So it has its uses, uh, but also I'm just waiting for the eventual collapse that I think we know is coming unless Musk dr- drops away from the company.
0: Yeah, I'm kind of in your camp, Chris. I'm waiting for the next shoe to drop and the next big thing, because I, I was so disappointed in the way that the platform is going under his leadership. But we would be remiss if I did not talk to you all about Mike Pence. So we we totally step on Mike Pence, who entered the 2024 race. I think it's today.
3: tomorrow. He hasn't announced yet.
0: Former boss. This is big news.
4: <laughs> For whom? For whom? I don't know. The fly and, that's still stuck to his head that he's not aware of.
0: Hey, this guy says he's the guy that can get it done, Alan. are, Are you feeling as hopeful about Mike Pence as you are about Twitter?
3: No, because he can't even represent himself or his wife. So if you can't, that's the basic level for me. If you ain't got those two things, you definitely can't lead a country. And if you want to represent the people who wanted to hang you, serious
0: problems. All right, Chris, he's going to get this. This Republican field is getting crowded because tomorrow Chris Christie's going to jump in and Talk is that he's the guy that can take Donald Trump down, and at least match him toe-to-toe when it comes to rhetoric. What do you think?
4: Yeah, I think Christie, Haley, Scott are all ahead of uh, Pence overall. But let's be honest, unless Donald Trump gets knocked out of this race, it's the Donald Trump-Ron DeSantis race. I think if Trump does get eliminated, now you have a second tier of candidates that might have a chance to eat their way to double digits.
0: All right, we got to leave it there. Always a pleasure to see you, Chris Scott and Alan Orr. Great insights as usual. When we come forward, I'm talking to a professor who's written a definitive book on the Obama administration and the role of race in that administration and the role that race will play in the 2024 presidential election. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580.
1: KBLA 1580 Santa Monica.
5: The NBA Finals at 1-1 with a three-point win Sunday night in Denver. A couple of major adjustments by Heat coach Eric Spoelstra was the difference in Game 2. Nuggets center Nikola Jokic scored a game-high 41 points, but he had only four assists. Jokic had 14 in Game 1. The four assists means Jokic accounted for at least 20 fewer points in Game 2. The Heat made it much more difficult for Jokic to pass the ball to open teammates. The Heat also made good on a promise to be more aggressive in going to the basket. After only two free throw attempts in game 1 they were 18 or 20 last night Gabe Vincent one of seven undrafted players on the Heat roster led the Heat with 23 points game 3 is Wednesday night in Miami at 5:30 on ABC no debates no speculation just the info you need that's your KBLA Sports Minute I'm Ray Richardson more news opinions and conversation when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580 it's our anniversary. Every
1: weekday during the month of June, we're giving away gear from the KBLA.store to say thank you for your support of KBLA Talk 1580 as we celebrate our second anniversary. Each weekday, a different host will be giving away fresh merch to one lucky caller. All you have to do is keep it locked to KBLA Talk 1580 throughout the day, and our host will tell you when to dial in and when. It's our way of showing appreciation to you for helping make KBLA Talk 1580 the most trusted, credible, and reliable source of information for listeners just like you. Here's hoping you'll be one of our lucky winners. you can always head over to the KBLA.store anytime for the best in KBLA Talk 1580 gear for yourself and great gift ideas. Now, celebrating two years of being your go-to, we're KBLA Talk 1580, and we've got your black.
0: Millennials are voting at higher rates than younger adults once did, and it's helping the Democratic Party. What seems to be driving younger voters to the polls isn't love, but anger. Many younger voters have become more politically active because they fear for the country's future. Those on the left, who are a majority of younger voters, worry about climate change, abortion access, the extremism of the Republican Party, and more. Those on the right, they worry about secularization, political correctness, and illegal immigration. Twitter's U.S. advertising revenue plunged by 59% for the five weeks from April 1st to the first week of May. The country the company actually lost $88 million in ad revenue. The company has regularly fallen short of its U.S. weekly sales projections, sometimes by as much as 30%. Twitter staff are concerned that advertisers may be spooked by a rise in hate speech and pornography on the social network, as well as more ads featuring online gambling and marijuana products. Nikki Haley had a fresh opportunity to make her case for her candidacy during a 90-minute CNN town hall in primetime on Sunday night. This is her effort to emerge from the low single digits in polls where she has been mired. Compared with CNN's explosive, much-criticized town hall-style event with Donald Trump last month, this one was a throwback to earlier, less combative. There was no audience jeers whipped up from the stage and no forceful interrogation of the candidate. Some states are letting neighborhoods police themselves. In April, the police stepped aside and let residents of Brownsville Safety Alliance in New York, a group of neighborhood and city groups, they let them respond to 911 calls. In the first half of 2023, homicides fell by 50 percent, while shootings fell by 25 percent and the rate of grand larcenies of automobiles also fell even as it rose in other neighborhoods. Similar programs are underway in Eugene, Oregon, Denver, and Rochester, New York. A decision by then-President Donald Trump's campaign to spend more than $1 million for two firms to study whether electoral fraud occurred in the 2020 election has become an increasing focus of federal and state investigators in recent weeks. The research is likely to be used as the prosecutors try to build a broader case alleging racketeering. Trump's lawyers also visited the Justice Department as classified as the classified documents inquiry nears an end. Three lawyers representing the former president spent nearly two hours uh, with the Department of Justice voicing their concerns about the department's handling of its investigation. Robert F. Kennedy, a candidate for president supported by what he says is one in five Democratic voters campaigns on the idea that powerful people have been working in secret to deceive you. Kennedy's campaign aims to embrace the spirit of his family's 1960 and 68 campaigns, hoping to reunite working class white supporters of former Trump with the Black and Hispanic coalitions of Democrats that once rallied behind the Kennedy name. He argues that current national polling does not yet account for the shifts he can bring to who votes in open Democratic primaries. Professor Cornell West also announced his third party candidacy for president today, as well as Mike Pence, former vice president under Donald Trump, announced that he too is running for president. This is Areva Martin in Real Time, and I'm your host, Areva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. This is hour two of Areva Martin in Real Time, and this is where I go behind the headlines. And in this hour, I'm going one-on-one with Dr. Andra Gillespie. She's the author of Race and the Obama Administration, Substance, Symbols, and Hope. I want to talk to Dr. Andrew about the role that race is going to play in the 2024 presidential election and what impact Obama's administration is going to have on this uh, election. We've heard several of the candidates try to address the issue of race. Nikki Haley, Uh, has essentially said that systemic racism doesn't exist in this country. That's been parroted by other candidates such as Ron DeSantis and even African-American candidate Tim Scott. He likes to tell the story of his grandparents, his grandfather being a sharecropper and picking cotton in the South, and how in one generation his family went from picking cotton to the halls of the U.S. Congress. Uh, Tim Scott likes to tell that story to basically say that you, too, black people, if you work hard, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And even if you start as a sharecropper, if you start in poverty, you can work hard and you one day can be a congressman. You can be a senator and maybe even president of the United States. Now, in telling this story. Tim Scott also likes to say that this country does not have a problem with systemic racism, that racism is not pervasive. And we'll talk to Dr. Gillespie about how these two narratives can coexist, because the story that Tim Scott tells seems to be exhibit A for systemic racism in the United States. Yet he likes to tell the story and somehow suggests that uh, he can do so. I call it gaslighting because anyone that knows that story or has heard that story or stories similar to that knows it has nothing to do with the reality of the pervasive nature of systemic racism that uh, exists in this country and has continued to exist in this country since the days of slavery. Uh, when we come forward, we'll get the take from uh, Professor Gillespie on the role of race in the 2024 presidential election. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580.
1: She's the real deal in real, in real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. 80.
0: In the spring and summer of 2011, a number of Black elites gained national attention for their pointed critiques of President Barack Obama. Princeton University professor Cornell West, now a third-party presidential candidate, contended that President Obama had gotten elected on the promise of providing progressive leadership, which would prioritize the needs of the poor. However, West went on to berate President Obama as a, quote, black mascot of Wall Street oligarchs and a black puppet of corporate poodocrats, end quote. Uh, Others critiqued Obama, noting that he had ignored the interests of black, his most loyal voting constituency, once he took the office. Uh, In her book, Symbols, Substance, and Hope, uh, Dr. Andra Gillespie tries to put into context the era in which Obama won his election and what he faced once he was called upon to govern. The book argues that because Obama could not get elected with just Black votes, he had to cultivate a crossover appeal outside of the African-American community and that candidates seeking such crossover appeal often employ a strategy called deracialization. Uh, and this is a strategy where they avoid racial appeals and advocacy of explicitly racial issues as much as possible to try to win non-Black votes. Uh, some of these deracialized candidates, as they are called, have been successful at winning office, but they do so at a great price. Uh, I want to welcome to the show Dr. Andra Galepsi. Thank you for joining me. Hey, Dr. Galebsi, I can't hear you.
6: Can you hear me now? Thank you for yeah. having Thank me.
0: Thank you so much. Your book... Uh obviously is about the Obama administration and president Obama has not been in office for a while. So somebody may be asking, why are we talking about president Obama uh, and his administration? And we are because his administration and how he ran his election and how he governed, particularly on issues of race are so relevant today as so many of the candidates who are running for office, particularly on the Republican side. And now that we have Cornell West running as a third party candidate, are having to grapple with this issue of race. And we know that uh, Dr. West was a big, uh, you know, he, he was widely critical of President Obama once he got elected, as I said, called him the mascot of Wall Street, called him a puppet of corporate plutocrats. What are you thinking in this moment about the candidates on both sides, and now this third-party candidate, Dr. West, about how they are addressing issues of race, particularly in the context of how President Obama, when he was running for election, uh, had to address race issues?
6: Well, you know, I have a lot of feelings about what has happened since Barack Obama was elected in 2008. So I think it's important to keep in mind that Uh, America was polarizing and divided in 2008. It's more so today than it was 15 years ago, but that's still the case. Um, And suffice to say, if Barack Obama were running for president today, I would still call him deracialized, but I think if everything had happened that has happened since he got elected, I think we would see a slightly different Barack Obama because he would have had to address the issues related to the moment. That being said, um, the success... And the breakthrough of electing um, an African-American president was notable, and it's going to be notable for a really long period of time. And President Obama is going to be the ruler by which other national Black candidates are going to be judged, rightly or wrongly. So I, I think we, one, can't ignore him, and two, that there are a lot of lessons that can be learned from the moment. It's also, I think, really important to recognize that in American history, moments of great racial progress are often met with a backlash. So, the idea that we see one, the Tea Party emerged in 2010, and then we see MAGAism and Trumpism emerge in 2015 and 2016 is probably directly related to the election of the first Black president. And so, in many ways, in order for us to understand the moment that we're in now, we have to understand what actually got Barack Obama to that moment and how that's actually caused the shift in African-American politics to the left in terms of, uh, especially for those who run for statewide and national politics, having to be more vocal about race and talk about things in ways that Obama would have uh, been afraid to do so, and I think rightfully so, um, and in ways that today seem a little bit quaint.
0: So let's talk about some of the candidates and how they are addressing race. Let's start with Tim Scott. So I started the uh, show talking about Tim Scott's uh, announcement when he announced that he was running for president. He told a very familiar story, and that's the story of his grandfather picking cotton, being a sharecropper, and how in one generation his family went from picking cotton to him being a U.S. congressman. Now he's obviously a a U.S. senator, and he's running— or president. And he tells that story to say that there isn't a systemic racism and that everyone, if they just work hard enough and if they pull themselves up you know, by their bootstraps, they too can have the quote unquote American dream. What do you make about how Tim Scott is using race uh, in his campaign? Because on one hand, he's telling this story to predominantly white audiences. And I think in some ways to make those audiences feel good to, so that they feel like hey, if I'm here supporting Tim Scott, I can't be a racist because Tim Scott said there, you know, this country isn't inherently racist. Uh, But I don't know what message he thinks that's sending to black Americans, particularly those who understand that that pull yourself up by the bootstrap story is, you know, a bunch of BS. Uh, I could say that more eloquently, but I think you get my point. So uh, what do you make about how Tim is Tim Scott, Senator Scott is using race?
6: Um, You know, well, it's interesting, and in some ways, it's not surprising that he has taken the particular stance that he's taken. Um, As a Democrat, Barack Obama had a lot more latitude to talk about racism and also sometimes to deflect racism. And I think it should be pointed out that there were people who voted for Barack Obama who, you know, thought that they were demonstrating their lack of racism by saying that they could vote for Barack Obama, and that was also not true in and of itself. Um, But deracialization looks different. For Republicans than it does for Democrats. So the thing that constrains Tim Scott and Nikki Haley is one, the Republican party formally rejects group identity. So let's be for real, Republicans play identity politics. And there are a lot of folks who have joined the uh, Republican party, particularly in the Trump era, because of his play toward white racial grievance. And so I'm not trying to say that, that there's no such thing as group politics that's going on in the Republican party, but formally they embrace the value of individualism and thus they tend to emphasize, uh, Uh, personal responsibility and hard work, being able to overcome all kinds of things. And so what that means is that for uh, Republicans of color, they tend to be really reluctant to talk about systemic racism. Now, the funny thing is, is that sometimes in individual stories and anecdotes, you do hear that they understand individual racism. So for those of you who are interested, I would highly recommend that you read Senator Scott's memoir called Opportunity Knocks. There's this one vignette in the story where he talks about visiting his brother out in Colorado and driving. Through the state and actually being worried about being pulled over by a cop. So he does actually intuitively understand systemic racism. He's not going to articulate that. This is the same senator who did no, give a speech.
0: Tristan, I mean, let me just tell you, I've heard him tell that story about being fearful of being pulled over by the cop or even having some experience- negative experiences because he's a black man with police. So he tells those stories at the same time that he says this country does not suffer from systemic racism. So I- there's some inconsistency, inherent inconsistencies in his own
6: narrative. Absolutely. And last night on CNN, Nikki Haley told the story about her uh, father being pulled over at a a vegetable stand, right, and being mistreated because he was Indian and sick and wearing a turban, right? So, like, they get it, but they can't say that because the party line says individual work responsibility, we don't want to recognize group interests, or acknowledge that most blacks in particular have a reason even if they're conservative to not identify or vote with the Republican party because the Republican party has ta- has taken very intentional stances on race that are an anathema to most Black people, even conservative Blacks, which is why uh, the vast majority of African-Americans still identify and vote as Democrats. So they're working that through, and that's hard, and that's actually going to be a stumbling block. Whereas uh, Barack Obama had the potential to try to reach out and build a really strong multiracial coalition um, of voters, uh, the Republican Party is over reliant on white voters. And when candidates of color try to say the same message that their white counterparts do, they don't actually end up being able to pull people from their own communities in the numbers that they would really want in order to be able to win. So I think that this is, you know, this is a problem. And this is why you see a lot of the pushback that Senator Scott has faced. And even when he tries to respond to that, as I've heard he did today on The View, right, it doesn't necessarily land well, and it's probably not going to allow him to accrue crew the type of uh, non-white support that's going to make him stand out in the crowd. If he wins, he's going to win with the same base of support that, you know, any other Republican candidate is going to use, which is going to be a largely white electorate.
0: But is there any research that you've done or any of your colleagues have done about how those narratives that, uh, you know Tim Scott tells Nikki Haley tells uh, people of color who are in the Republican party conservative uh conservatives like Tim and Nikki how it lands with their mm-hmm. white constituents because mostly they're telling these stories in all white crowds because as you just said there're not very many people of color who are members of these Republican of the Republican party definitely nationwide so when they're going from city to city meeting with voters they're meeting with predominantly white voters. So how are these stories landing with them? I know how they're landing with people of color, but how do they land if you know with white voters?
6: Yeah, so it, it, it's interesting. So uh, Seth McKee, um, a colleague at the University of Georgia, has done work on uh, Black candidates in particular uh, and uh, white voters. And uh, there are white voters who like really conservative Black candidates. So actually, if you're more conservative than the normal sort of average Republican voter, that actually gets you notice. Um, and that might actually accrue to you in terms of greater support. So if you want to understand you know, how somebody like Senator Scott, for instance, uh, can be below sometimes actually outperformed Lindsey Graham um, in a electoral contests in South Carolina. He's, you know, a clearly identifiable conservative uh, Republican, um, and that's going to have an appeal for, uh, you know, for Republican voters in a state like South Carolina. Um, if you could see why people thought, um, even though the personal kind of peccadillos ended up uh, undermining him, people would have thought that Herschel Walker would have been a strong Senate candidate in Georgia, right? It's because he was more than willing to not just totally Uh, the party line on uh, conservatism, but then double down on it. If you look at the success of kind of these new up and coming Republican members of Congress who um, are doing just as well as their white counterparts, or how you could have somebody like a Byron Donald in the Republican caucus, and then have see him kind of align with the with the Freedom Caucus, right? Like there is an incentive to for or black uh, Republican candidates to engage in this type of behavior. That said, uh, Republicans, uh, Black Republicans are a little bit more diverse uh, than I think people give them credit. So we you go back to the work of uh, historians like Leah wright Rigger and Joshua uh, Farrington that look at kind of old line Black Republicans who did so because they wanted to keep both parties honest and to try to have exercise leverage over both parties. And folks who kind of come from that old uh, fashioned 1950s civil rights tradition of George Romney and Nelson Rockefeller, there are still very racially conscious black um, Republicans who are in the party, right, who are drawn either to the socially conservative message or to the message of black capitalism. And ironically, uh, Tim Skye actually does espouse certain notions of black capitalism um, and business development um, that, you know, Donald Trump tried to use when he talked about sort of his deals with black America and the things that got Ice Cube on board uh, with his campaign in 2020. And then there are those who don't want to talk about race and who are perfectly willing to say things like racism doesn't exist in order to be able to get elected. So I think it's important to know that uh, there is there is diversity even within that small pool of Black Republicans as well.
0: What do you make of Ron DeSantis? So when he did his botched announcement of his run for presidency on Twitter, you know, the whole platform was glitching throughout the entire announcement, but th- he did get a chance to talk and to push back on the NAACP uh, and their travel advisory to Florida. He recently uh, attacked the uh i guess black folks in maryland and chicago and compared how they were more likely to be victims of violence or shot in those cities uh than they were in florida and and he's been pretty poignant about his anti-blackness and has been bold enough to you know be out front on issues of by history and removing books from schools How do you uh, you put in context his relationship with race and how he's using race in his campaign?
6: Well, DeSantis is doing things that have worked for other people recently. Um, In 2015, when Donald Trump descended uh, the staircase at Trump Tower and, you know, instantly came out maligning Mexican-Americans, right, most people looked at that and based on what we knew from the political science literature, we were like, that campaign is dead on arrival. He's saying explicitly racist things in an era where people are more moved by implicitly racist comments, coded language, visual imagery, and other types of things. And so based on what we knew at the time, we would have said, that's probably, probably not the most effective campaign strategy except for the fact that it worked. And so then we had to acknowledge that overt racial appeals were now becoming increasingly in vogue and Donald Trump was able to deploy them successfully throughout his administration and uh, was successfully tapping into white anger and white racial resentment about a loss of social status to be able to mobilize voters. So my colleague, Davin um, Phoenix at UC Irvine has written this wonderful book on anger that talks about how anger in particular can be used to mobilize white voters. so that's what Ron DeSantis is doing. So he's seen Trump be successful at it. He saw Glenn Youngkin use school curricula in his successful campaign in Virginia as governor. Um, and so now he's trying to scale that on a national level to talk about this in terms of, you know, teaching black history, uh, in terms of talking about gender and sexuality and other types of issues to just tap into anger on a broader scale to try to uh, to try to out Trump.
0: When we come forward, more with the author of the Obama administration, Symbols, Substance, and Hope, and how race is going to play uh, in the 2024 presidential election. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580.
1: Arriva time is the right time. More of Arriva Martin in real time when we come forward. You're listening to Arriva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580.
0: And I'm one-on-one today with Professor Andra Gillespie. She is the author of Symbols, Substance and Hope, Race and the Obama Administration. And we're talking about the role that race plays in presidential campaigns. Talking about the role that race plays in presidential campaigns and particularly uh, the candidates of color who are running for president in the 2024 election. So Cornell West, Professor uh, Gillespie announced his presidency today, says he's running as a third party candidate. And he was one of the uh, individuals, some call him a black elite. He's been a professor at Princeton, been a professor at Harvard, uh very critical of president obama berated him actually called him a, a black mascot of wall street a puppet of corporate plutocrats pood- how is cornell west going to deal with the issue of race in his own campaign
6: well, I expect that he will talk about it um, explicitly. I think the question is, uh, how well is he going to do win this campaign? And I have a tremendous amount of respect uh, for uh, Professor West. Um, uh, but I don't think that he's going to have much of an impact on the 2024 race. Um, historically, third party candidates don't do that well. Um, And the role of third party candidacies, whether we're talking about Cornell West candidacy or whether we're talking about the proposed candidacy of the third Way group that's trying to put together a unity ticket, is one, to express dissatisfaction with the two major parties um, and to perhaps teach one of the two major parties a lesson. Um, So if you can siphon off enough votes from a party, right, that they lose or almost lose, then that party may try to seek a rapprochement with you and you might be able to impact the party platform going forward. Um, like that, may, that, that, That's one strategy that has been used. I mean, if we think about it, it, it is what ended up happening with the Dixiecrats in 1948 when they splintered from the Democratic Party and almost cost uh, Harry Truman the election. Uh, their inclusion and their reabsorption back into the Democratic Party platform delayed the Democratic Party taking you know, a major shift in terms of support of civil rights from the late 40s to the early to mid 1960s when the civil rights movement meant that Lyndon Johnson couldn't ignore it anymore so like that's one thing that you can do or um, a, a third party could kind of emerge out of the uh, decline of one of the two major parties and then actually end up emerge to become one of the two major parties. And so that's how what we know as the Republican Party today kind of emerged out of sort of the fall uh, of the Whig Party in the 1850s. Uh, you know, I think the question would be, would third way end up being some type of replacement for the current Republican Party? Um, if- The uh, sort of MAGA wing of the party becomes too small um, and and too niche to actually be able to credibly win major statewide and national elections. And one, I don't think that the, the MAGA wing is that decimated yet. And I don't think that the opposition to the MAGA wing within the Republican movement is actually unified enough for that to happen. But it's something that we are waiting and looking at. And for somebody like Cornell West to run, it certainly gets some notoriety. It allows him to be able to get a platform, perhaps to get some earned media. But it's going to take a lot of organization to be able to get to the point where you actually can earn a, you know enough votes, um, enough signatures and to be able to get on ballots and then to actually be able to make a dent in the overall um, electoral college count. So, um, you know, this is very much a long shot candidacy. Um, You know, I wish him well. But, you know, as you know, an, an objective observer, I would say that his chances of becoming the next president of the United States are pretty remote.
0: Well, the, the bigger issue, I guess, for me with Cornell West is here's a guy that was very critical of President Obama and the way he governed once in office and basically said he ran on a platform of being progressive and you know, implicit in that was that he was going to be a president for poor people, for Black people. And then once in office, Cornel West said, you know, he basically betrayed the commitments that he made to Black people. So the, the question, the bigger question is, is it possible to make the kind of commitment that Cornel West believes Obama made? And then once in office to govern, consistent with the way that you have campaigned? And now Cornel West will face, again, assuming he had a more viable candidacy, if he, as you you know, you know, just outlined all the reasons that third-party candidates often fail, but would he face any different plight than Obama faced? Because it's easy to make a lot of campaign promises, but then once in office, people oftentimes forget about the limitations, first of all, of the, the president's office to begin with.
6: So, I mean, I actually would take issue with the fact that Obama ran as a progressive. I don't think he did, um, you know, uh, deracialization racialization um, as a campaign strategy to try to reach out beyond the African-American community for votes is often Um, associated with neoliberalism, which is in itself at odds with progressivism. So many people who run deracialized campaigns are usually trying to win over more moderate um, and conservative leaning voters. So they tend to embrace things like public-private partnerships and and other types of things that progressives tend to kind of really be uncomfortable with. Um, Obama ran as as, as a deracialized candidate. I think a lot of people uh, were excited about the prospect of electing a Black candidate so that he became a cipher and everybody projected their own. Own sort of views and goals and hopes and dreams on him. And he never really said that that was what he was going to do. And then there are the institutional constraints of the presidency. Um, the executive branch is but one of three co-equal branches of government. And so the president... Well, let me stop you for a second, Professor. I, I,
0: we can probably debate for lots of hours about what Obama said and didn't say to the Black community. And I, I think I probably tend to agree with you more that, you know, Obama never at least in the way that we think about progressive candidates today, definitely would not be considered in, you know, progressive in those terms. But he did come out of a community organizing background. And for many in that era, he was considered to be pretty progressive. You know, the definition of of progressive changes as we look at, you know, candidates today or elected officials today, like AOC and Cori Bush, Clearly, Obama is not cut from the same cloth as those two representatives. But it, I don't know if it's fair to say he wasn't, you know, selling himself, particularly to the black community, as a
6: progressive candidate. Well, no, I mean, I, 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 like I, I still hold firm to that. Like he was liberal enough for sure His community organizing um, credentials certainly gave him street credibility in black communities where people were not sure that he was loyal. Um, to black voters and being deracialized. i certainly raised that suspicion and that was exacerbated by his own personal story. So the fact that he's biracial, the fact that he grew up in Hawaii and Indonesia meant that he didn't have the typical archetypal black upbringing that those of us who grew up on the mainland had. Right. And so you could look at the community organizing background and say, yes, this is somebody who cares about black communities. This is somebody who taught constitutional law and was a civil rights lawyer. So you knew that he had some connection to African-American communities. But, I mean, you know, he took a stance against the Iraq war uh, as a state senator. So that you know would have been perceived as progressive in 2008. But when you were thinking about who the economic populist was in the 2008 pool, John Edwards probably would have been a little bit more associated with that um, in terms of, uh, of, of how he was trying to present himself than Barack Obama was. Barack Obama did a really good job of being a bridge and kind of all things to all people so that people felt comfortable enough with him and were able to get excited uh, about that particular candidacy. Um, And in particular, his ability to be able to win in Iowa uh, with its not particularly diverse population um, and not a state that would be usually considered kind of on the progressive end of uh, of the spectrum of states. So, you know, it's not like winning in Massachusetts, for instance. Um, You know, I think was something to suggest that he was somebody who definitely played more toward the moderate wing um, of, of the party than the Bernie Sanders wing of the party.
0: When we come forward, we're going to talk about how race impacts governing, not just campaigning. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580.
1: She's the real deal (laughs) in real time. You're listening to Areva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Areva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. 1580.
0: Professor Gillespie, we've talked about a lot of the candidates who are running uh, to become the Republican candidate for president in 2024. Let's talk about a couple of the Democratic candidates, starting with Robert Kennedy. What do you expect to hear from Robert Kennedy on the issue of race or how is he going to address race? He says that he's going to rebuild the coalition of blacks and Latinos that have traditionally supported Democratic candidates hearkening back to his father and his uncle.
6: He's trying to rebuild the the New Deal coalition, Um, and so uh, Blacks are still firmly a part of that coalition. Um, The number of uh, Latinos or Hispanics or Latinx people Uh, within that coalition is about where we would expect it to be. I think, you know, during the Obama era, we saw an increase in Latino voting um, for Barack Obama that I think some people saw as a harbinger of uh, that community voting at rates comparable to the Black community. And that turned out not to be true. And so they've kind of gone back to their equilibrium. But, you know, the 60 to 70% um, Democratic voting is as normal in terms of what the general trend line is going to be. And so the group that's missing from that are working class whites. And so Kennedy thinks that he can win back those elusive working class white voters who uh, were voting Republican in greater numbers well before 2016. Nationally, people figured it out and started to talk about the fact that working class whites were no longer Democrats. But that trend had actually started decades beforehand. And so I think that that's an ambitious goal. And it's one that's likely not going to happen in one election cycle. So I would be somewhat doubtful about it. Um, You know, a lot of people-
0: Can you win back those working class? whites while talking openly about
6: racism and systemic racism? Well, the challenge with winning over working class white voters is how much are they privileging their class identity in terms of how they're voting or how much they're privileging their racial identity. And we forget that in this country, race has been used as a wedge issue to uh, uh, drive uh, poor people apart. Uh, So there's a value in whiteness that has been uh, sort of inferred uh, in American society through slavery, distinguishing blacks as the group that was going to be enslaved, and even amongst poor whites by sort of distinguishing them between blacks of any class status through Jim Crow and forms of systemic Uh, Racism. So there are whites who, for class reasons, might be interested in some of the big tent social uh, welfare policies of the Democratic Party, but are turned off from that because they think that that's only supposed to support people of color uh, and that it's not for them. And that even though even though they might not benefit from, you know, the tax breaks. Of the Trump administration, right? But that that was something for them. So I think that that's a hurdle that needs to be overcome. And it sounds like some of the classic things that you know I certainly learned about in graduate school about you know why uh, you know the Communist Party and socialism didn't take root in the United States in the way that it did in in, in Europe. Uh, and so it seems like, one, he's making those same mistakes. Um, and then I think that there's a question that we forget about Black voters being ultimately pragmatic and thinking about whether or not, one, Kennedy actually has the opportunity to win uh, the nomination, and then, two, whether or not he would actually be the strongest candidate in a general election. I know that the surveys say that, you know, Kennedy is getting 20% of the vote. We know that voters are angry at the possibility of a rematch between Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden, so people really don't want to revisit 20 20- There are concerns about the ages of these two candidates, you know, who are are the oldest in American history if they run. And so that 20 percent may reflect. Protests and fatigue with this looking like it's going to be a repeat of 2020. It may also reflect some name recognition um, of Kennedy that, um, you know, once people get to know a little bit more about what he stands for, particularly his conspiracy views regarding vaccines, that might make them sort of hold back. I think the other thing that I would say about this is that you have to be really careful when we look at these surveys to look at who the sample universe is. So, are we talking about likely Democratic primary voters? Are we talking about voters in general, or Democrat, or you know, self-identified Democrats? These may not be the people who are actually going to show up and vote in a primary election,
0: right? What do you make of Joe Biden and the way that he has addressed race uh, in his last campaign and, and how he's addressing it now? Uh, and then I do want to address this issue of how you govern because you know, lots of folks. Avoid race or confront race head on when campaigning, but then they face different challenges once they are in office.
6: Well, because Joe Biden was running in an era where racial tensions were clearly increasing and where it became okay for Democrats to talk more explicitly about race than they were able to do in 2008, Joe Biden was able to do things that Barack Obama wouldn't have been able to do in 2008. So he could talk about campaigning for voting rights. Um, you know. Shelby County versus Holder hadn't happened in 2008. He could talk about wanting to preserve that. Uh, you know, he could talk about wanting you know to put a black woman on the Supreme Court. That's the type of promise that David Axelrod would not have let Barack Obama make in 2008 for fear that it would turn off non-black voters. So there are ways that uh, Biden has been able to be very explicit. Um, you know, he's you know was able to nominate Kamala Harris and 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 help and telegraph that ahead of time so that black women felt included i will also give black women activists credit for pushing that they get more recognition within the administration and within policy for all the work that black women do as the base of the democratic party so in in some ways, uh, Biden has been able to be more explicit because the times have shifted to allow for that greater explicitness, and we've certainly seen greater representation. You know, in terms of senior staff, you could look at people like Karine Jean Pierre, right, and see her being able to you know take that role, um, that breakthrough role in her you know position as press secretary, and and not be able to imagine Barack Obama having the latitude to be able to do that. Um, you know, in terms of governance. Uh, Biden is, is 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 challenged by the same thing structurally that Obama is. So he's had to operate, you know, at least, you know, for the last, uh, you know, this year and into next year in a period of divided government. He is operating in a period of polarization um, where it's going to be difficult to forge bipartisan consensus um, on issues. And if Congress can't move on things, there are ways that he is not going to be able to act unilaterally, always in the ways that progressives want to be able to. So you can't, there are a lot of things you can do with executive orders, but if there is no law that actually gives you the authority to issue an executive order on a particular issue, you can't do anything about it. So, you know, in some ways, you know, Biden is gonna be constrained by the things that all presidents are with respect to separation of powers. I think the one thing that has challenged uh Biden is he's been able to maneuver and operate and get things done, but he hasn't gotten credit for it because I think that there was an expectation that Biden was gonna do it and make it look easy and we weren't gonna see the sausage being made anymore. And we've seen a lot of messiness um mm-hmm. in the last couple of years. And that's because politics is inherently messy. And it's especially messy when you have people, you know, in the other branches who are not cooperating with you and who are intent on not seeing you succeed. And I think that that has actually probably undermined this notion of competence that he tried to exude in the 2020 election. Let me ask you
0: about reparations uh, quickly. California is going to issue its reparations uh, task force report. We know that report is likely to say uh, California should pay over $880 million to the descendants of slaves. We've seen other cities and states around the nation uh, start to address the issue of reparations. There's H.R. 40 uh, that has stalled in Congress. What do you expect these candidates to say about reparations as they attempt to win over
6: Black voters? Um, Well, I wouldn't expect the Republican candidates of color to endorse it. Uh, And what I expect to hear on the campaign trail of the Democratic candidates, uh, particularly Joe Biden, is uh, that he is open to studying the issue. Um, I don't know if he's gonna go so far as to endorse it. In fact, I would expect that he won't. Um, I talk about this in an article I wrote last year in the Journal of Law and Religion, um, that, that's actually the dividing line between the racialized and the deracialized democratic uh candidates. So you'll have racialized candidates. So I would expect like a Jamal Bowman or Cory Bush uh to explicitly endorse reparations. And then I would expect others to say this is worth studying, um, and not necessarily uh push to move forward with it. I, I think what what you're going to see happen is we're going to have to wait to see how this plays out at the local level um, and how successful these reparations programs are. And if they proliferate across cities and states around the country, then that's going to give uh congressional leaders the confidence to be able to address this issue. But that type of diffusion and proliferation is actually going to take years. So I wouldn't expect nationally that uh reparations This bill is going to get traction in this Congress or the next Congress.
0: Do you think a candidate like Kamala Harris, assuming, you know, we're four years post the 2024 election, we're into 2028 and she's a candidate. Does she run as a racialized or deracialized candidate?
6: Well, she's won office so far as a largely deracialized candidate. So again, she's like uh, uh, Barack Obama. She you know, takes advantage of the fact that her parents were active in the civil rights movement and her position as being from Oakland as signs that she understands the problems that African-American communities face and that she's connected to those communities. But she's largely presented herself um, you know, in a way that's going to try to appeal to the broadest space possible. And I expect that she's going to continue to do that. Um, most of our success successful uh black statewide and national candidates so her and barack obama um but then if we also look at cory booker Raphael warnock uh, Westmore, they have tended to be more on the de-racialized side because you can't win an election at the statewide or national level on a majority of Black votes. So, um, you know, if we look at the folks who have felt more comfortable being explicitly racialized in their point of view, they come from heavily Democratic districts, but also districts that tend to be majority minority. And so that's where you have the latitude to kind of say those things um, in a very explicit way. But other folks, you know, who are running in different types of electoral situations tend to be a little bit more muted in how they talk about race.
0: We've got to leave it there. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Andra Gillespie. Her book is Symbols, Substance, and Hope race and the Obama administration. Thank you so much for your insights uh, on this really important issue. We're going to track, obviously, how these candidates continue to talk about the issue of race leading up to the 2024 presidential campaign or election, I should say. Uh, You are listening to KBLA Talk 1580. And The next voice you hear will be Robin Ayers and the Raw Report.
1: KBLA 1580 Santa Monica.